This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican correspondent Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. A cardinal once considered a possible future pope was sentenced to more than five years in prison. The Catholic Church's most senior official to ever stand a criminal trial, Angelo Beccio, has been convicted of embezzlement and fraud. A Vatican tribunal has sentenced Cardinal Angelo Beccio to five and a half years in prison. It's the first such sentence in at least 500 years. This week on Inside the Vatican, Jerry and I explain the financial scandal that led to the trial, the dramatic revelations that emerged throughout it, and what happens next, both to Cardinal Beccio and with Pope Francis's financial and judicial reforms. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from a beautiful autumn day in Rome, Colleen. <laughs> autumn in December, because you're so close to the equator. Absolutely. Jerry, it's been a busy week already with the news that we reported on Monday, December 18th, about Pope Francis opening the door to the possibility of blessing same-sex couples. But today, we're actually going to go back to a story from this weekend. So on Saturday, Cardinal Angelo Becciu was sentenced to 5.5 years in prison for embezzlement. He was also prohibited from ever again holding public office and fined 8,000 euros. There were nine other defendants in this trial in addition to Becciu, and they had a mixed outcome, some guilty verdicts, many acquittals actually, out of the almost 50 charges that had been brought against them. One defendant was fully acquitted. Others received jail sentences ranging from three to 7.5 years. Some are going to appeal that. And there was also a total of 200 million euros in damages that they're expected to pay. So this was a big trial. It's been going on for two and a half years. I want to just start with some historic context. Why does this trial matter so much in terms of history? Well, over the decades, if not centuries, there have been lots of problems relating to Vatican finances. On the eve of the conclave that elected Pope Francis, March 2013, many of the cardinals said, we have to clean up the Vatican finances. There are too many scandals. When we talk about this being a place marred by scandal, it was like a haven for money laundering. It was seen as a place that you could put money offshore for tax evasion purposes. There was very little oversight. The cardinals on the eve of the conclave said, we can't continue having money-linked scandals coming out of the Vatican. That is damaging our ability to preach the gospel, to evangelize. And so when Pope Francis was elected, one of the first things he set about doing was to clean up Vatican finances. He set up immediately a commission to look at what was the state of Vatican finances. 
What were the problems? Should we close the Vatican Bank? These were all the issues that he, he looked at in the first summer as Pope, summer of 2013. Since then, this over the past 10 years, he's moved step by step to reform completely the Vatican financial system. Most recently, he removed that money from the Secretariat of State, which handled hundreds of thousands of dollars. Maybe even if you count the portfolios, you might, may be moving close to one billion. And Jerry, this is significant in part for this trial because Cardinal Becciu used to hold the third highest position in the Vatican. He was what's called the sustituto, the substitute in the Secretariat of State, which in my understanding is like a chief of staff position. Exactly, exactly. So that's a bit about the last 10 years, but there are some parts of this trial that were unprecedented in the last few centuries, right? This is the first trial presided over by three lay judges without a jury. Francis removed the immunity that bishops and cardinals enjoyed from being tried by lay judges. If they had to come to trial, they would be tried by cardinals. When Francis asked Cardinal Becciu in 2020, September, to resign and to give up his privileges, one of those privileges was the privilege of immunity from having to face a court of lay judges. Francis went further. In April 30, 2021, he introduced a modification to the law, which opened up the possibility for any bishop or cardinal to be tried by the Vatican Tribunal of Lay Judges. My understanding is also that this is the first time that the Vatican has tried a cardinal for financial crimes since the 1700s. Perhaps earlier. It really is uh, without precedent in the modern times. And I think you may have to go back before 1600 to actually find such a case. So let's talk now about the the crime, the the financial transaction that was the reason for this trial. In fact, Cardinal Becciu is only a small part of this. So in 2013, the Vatican invested in a real estate development in a wealthy neighborhood in London, the Chelsea neighborhood, and they put 200 million euros of the Secretariat of State's money into a hedge fund. Half that hedge fund went towards turning this former warehouse into luxury apartments. The other half went into other investments. That was 2013. After five years in 2018, the fund had already lost 18 million euros. And so the Vatican wanted to exit this investment, but they didn't want to cede control of the property. So they spent another 40 million to buy out the property as a whole so that they could then sell it off. But according to Vatican prosecutors, one of the brokers that they worked with then extorted the Holy See for 15 million additional euros to let them out of the investment. There was a clause that had been snuck into the contract that gave him control, and so they had to pay him to let them out. Altogether, the Vatican lost 139 million euros on the deal out of their 200 million that they had invested, and then the 18 million, and then the 40 million on top of that. And the judge in this trial said that the 200 million euro investment, that initial investment, was around a third of the money controlled by the Vatican's Secretariat of State at that time. So we talked about how Cardinal Bacci was in a position to control the movement of money. This was money that he had the final say over. Now, 
The point at which red flags are set up for the Vatican here is when the Secretary of State approaches the Vatican Bank for a loan to cover the money that they needed to invest to get out of the deal. At that point, a Vatican financial watchdog alerted the Pope to this, and this big investigation began. And we remember there was a raid on the Secretary of State's offices. It was all very dramatic. And shortly after that, Cardinal Betu had his cardinal privileges revoked, and then this uh, trial began. So, Jerry, that's the nutshell version of this. Can we just recap what exactly Cardinal Betu did, what this trial found? The first one was how he mishandled the London property. Cardinal Betu, first of all, chose this man on some advice, one of the brokers, an Italian broker in London. He chose him first to explore the possibility of investment. They had money and he wanted to invest. And Yesterday, for example, Colleen, on a television program, he said, look, it's been the tradition of the Vatican since 1929, when the Vatican State was set up and they got properties, some compensation from the Italian government for the loss of Vatican properties. He said, we've been investing. We've got investments in Paris. We've got investments in Rome. A lot of the properties around the Vatican are owned by the Vatican. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, right? I mean, you're the steward of these donations that come in. You want to make them grow. Yes, exactly. But here the problem was, first of all, the choice of person that he chose as the broker. But that didn't come in so much into the discussion. But they gave money to this broker in London, Mincione. They bought effectively 40 six percent, I think, of a property, a minority share. He also used the money for other purposes. And they had no control over how he used the money. It was a hedge fund. The judge said in the trial, this was a high risk speculative fund. And in the tradition of the Vatican, and also according to canon law, you've got to be careful of how you use your money. So there were a whole lot of factors, it had not been an investment done with care and with prudence. Okay, so the judge says that Betu is guilty of embezzlement and illicit use of Vatican funds for this initial 200 million euro investment uh, because, he says, canon law prohibits using church money on such a speculative, risky investment. And, and that money would have come from donations. What does Betu say about like how he justifies this? Because I know he thinks that he's innocent. Betu, throughout the trial, and even before, he always tended to throw the responsibility on somebody else. In this case, he said, I was head of, as it were, a whole department in the Vatican, but I had several officers under me, and one of those officers was the administrative office, and there was a man in charge of that, a Monsignor Pelasca, and it was he who was responsible, because he advised me to go this way. He never accepted, and he doesn't to this day, that the buck stopped with him. Perlaska, at the beginning, he looked as if he was being indicted by the prosecution, but then he turned state evidence. So he switched sides. He switched sides, and he, at the end of the day, he, he wasn't prosecuted for anything. But he gave a lot of information to the prosecutors. And the Perlaska thing brings us to some of the other charges that Betu was facing. So let's talk through those now. When the trial started, Betu was faced with four charges. The first one was how he handled or mishandled the London property. The second one was for witness tampering, tampering with the witnesses. He tried to get the bishop 
of the head of his administrative office, Monsignor Pelasca, to get Pelasca to withdraw his testimony to the court. Thirdly, he was charged with using Secretariat of State funds, and we're talking about $125,000. He ordered that to be sent to Sardinia, he's from Sardinia himself, to the diocese, his home diocese, where his brother was in charge of a charity fund called SPEZ, which was setting up a kitchen, a bakery, etc., to help and give employment and poor. Now, canon law prohibits such actions. You cannot alienate, use church funds to help your family to the fourth degree. So even though the trial found, or the judge found that that money did ultimately go to charity, it was still illegal because it was a conflict of interest because it was his brother's charity. Yes, he, he was breaking canon law, but it was also a conflict of interest in normal civil terms. And fourthly, he had hired a young woman, a Sardinian woman also, a friend of the family, who claimed to be an expert in intelligence gathering and knew the intelligence world. She was introduced to him by top Italian intelligence services. And he gave her from the Secretariat of State, he hired her to help liberate a nun who was kidnapped in Mali, in Africa, by an Islamist group. And he gave her half a million dollars. Right, 570,000 euro. The aim of that money was to help get the release of the nun from the captors. Now, this young woman, she set up a company in Slovenia to which the money was sent from the Vatican. And there's documentation that she used a lot of that money on luxury goods, Prada, Louis Vuitton. And we should say that she denied these charges. She still says that she can provide a full accounting of how the money was spent. She had a chance in the trial already, and she didn't seem to convince the judges. He was, together with her, condemned for fraud in this operation. She was sentenced to three years and nine months in prison. He was sentenced to five years and five months in prison. The two brokers that he was involved in London also got prison sentence. Also a financial consultant who was living in Switzerland, but who had been a financial consultant for the Vatican for 20 years, was given a bigger seven-year prison sentence. The two financial authority controllers in the Vatican were fined a small amount of money, about 1,500 euro, 1,700 euro, for not having denounced the irregularities that they saw. They hadn't abused their office, but they hadn't acted when they should have acted. Then Becciu's secretary, Monsignor Carlino, was acquitted. And then there was one lawyer who was involved as well, who was given a prison sentence, but it was only two years, so it was suspended. By Vatican law, this is possible. So you had, out of the 10 who were originally sent for trial, one was acquitted, two were given monetary fines, seven were given prison sentences, but one had the prison sentence suspended because it was only two years. Jerry, can I just say I am so impressed that you just did all of that off the top of your head. <laughs> 
All right. That was a fantastic summary. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the key issues that have come up in this trial, some unintended revelations, questions about the Pope's involvement in the trial, and also we'll recap what happens next. Stay with us. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Jerry, let's talk about some of the key issues that emerged in this trial. One of the reports I was reading, I believe it was from the Associated Press about this, referred to this as a trial of unintended revelations, revealing that the Vatican had offered up to 1 million euros to free this kidnapped nun. And we've talked about this on the show before. This this is a dangerous thing to reveal because now terrorist groups like this can use that number as leverage. And that was, as you've mentioned previously, a, a number that didn't need to come out, even though Betu said he was given permission by the Pope to share this number. It wasn't really relevant to the case. Uh, likewise, this trial revealed weaknesses in the Vatican City-State's financial checks and balance system, which has been strengthening over time, but still has its problems. And there were questions raised throughout this trial about whether defendants in the Vatican judicial system are are able to get a fair trial, especially since Francis had personally intervened in the case, right? There were complaints that since he's the supreme legislator and the absolute monarch of the city state, you know, can they really get a fair trial? I just can we talk about the Pope's role here? What what how did he intervene and and what's his role? I think from the beginning, Bichu's lawyers seemed to target the Pope. I I know this from personally talking to them. Secondly, the Pope and uh, top legal experts say the Pope's interventions in, for example, removing the immunity from cardinals and bishops from being indicted and put on trial, this was perfectly within the legal framework that, that exists. He also gave the investigative judicial authority the power to tap phones to intercept communications. In the normal run of things, they would have gone to the substitute, Betu's successor, Penapara, or to the Cardinal Secretary of State for such a permission. But in this case, given that the investigation was pretty broad, it would be asking people who would be potentially involved in the investigation. Right. You don't want to ask the Secretariat of State's permission to wiretap the Secretariat of State. 
or, for example, to raid the secretaries of state. Right, which also happened, yeah. So, Jerry, it sounds like your response to people who would say that the Pope has intervened unfairly in this would be to say that all of Francis's interventions were perfectly legal. And in fact, you see Betu's lawyers as having tried to get the Pope in trouble. Is that right? Well, they tried to, I think, from the beginning to attack the validity of the trial. They were saying, you can't have a fair trial in the Vatican in a monarchical state. And it was a kind of like a mantra that kept coming out. Yeah, I remember that in, in the press coverage. And it feels like it's a valid criticism. Remember, Colleen, the chief judge, the president of the tribunal, was a top mafia magistrate. Prosecutor. Yes, prosecutor. In the prosecution against the mafia and against the Red Brigades, the Italian state had to go beyond the existing legislation to enable the prosecution to go ahead. Francis did something similar. He enabled the prosecution to go ahead. Didn't interfere with the judgment, didn't interfere with, with the uh, evidence, but gave the possibilities for the prosecution to do the investigation in a complete way. Even Betchu's lawyers admitted at the end that they had all the possibility to ask questions, to cross-examine, to bring in evidence. Nothing was prohibited to them. So all that you would have in a normal judicial process was available to them. Jerry, I want to ask you also about um, Cardinal Perlin here. He's the Vatican's top diplomat and the Secretary of State, his, his office, was defrauded by Betchu in the real estate deal, but Perlin did initially sign off on the investment. So I wonder, with this verdict, how does Perlin come out looking? Are there questions about his leadership? What you've got here, Betchu, he was then Archbishop, he sought to get everybody to sign off on what he was doing so that he did not take responsibility for it. This is the bottom line. And he takes it to Cardinal Parolin. And Cardinal Parolin has a thousand things and not an expert in finance. And Betchu say, I've got all this and this is good. And so they trust him. He comes to the Pope and says, I'm doing this and this and this. And this is what he's doing. You can't expect the Pope to go and check all the financial background that is coming in. You have to trust your advisors. But when your advisor is going down a track that is now judged criminal in terms of the Vatican state law and in terms of canon law, well, it's not Parolin who comes out badly of the case. It's Betchu. Cherry, as I'm listening to this, I'm a little puzzled, I guess, because even though they should have been able to trust Betchu, Perlin and the Pope did ultimately sign off on these things, right? So, so they are at fault here, right? These questions came up in the court. And the question was, what was Betchu doing? He was going and telling them, this is what I'm doing. It was a question of, he was informing them. It, it was not necessarily asking their permission. When you say signing off, it, it means asking permission, right? No. My understanding of the court, from what I followed, was that he informed them, and this is, I, I think, what Cardinal Parolin said at one stage, he was informed that he was doing this. and. He asked, is there any problems with it? And Betchu says, no. The Secretariat of State went as a plaintiff in this case. So the, they were in the case against Betchu. Also, Colleen, speaking from my own vantage point, we have a fraction 
of the information that the court had in making its decision. You had 86 hearings, sessions of the court. You had 68 witnesses. But you had more than 20,000 pages of documentation by the defense, much more by the prosecution. You had, I think, over a million files. You had interceptions. So what has come out in the public domain is a fraction of what the prosecution and the judges had when reaching their verdict. Right. So there's a lot of information we don't have. We're reporting right now on what we do know and the verdict that was pronounced by this court. Let's talk about now what happens next to to Betu and the other defendants. Several have already said that they're going to appeal. Can you talk to me about kind of the levels of appeal there are? Immediately after the sentence was handed down and the verdict given, the cardinal's senior lawyer said, we will appeal this decision. The cardinal is innocent. Mincione has made very clear he intends to appeal. He's one of the brokers. He's the first broker, the one who, with whom the Vatican dealt with first in London. And thirdly, Cecilia Maronia has made clear that she intends to appeal. So we know already there are three appeal cases. So the Vatican judicial system, it has a first instance, which is the trial, the tribunal. The one that just happened. And it took two and a half years, the trial. Right. The second instance is the court of appeal. We don't know when it will start. That court of appeal, while the first instance had three lay judges, the court of appeal has six judges. Three of them are lay and three of them are ecclesiastics, in other words, clerics. There is a third level of appeal, which is the court of cassation, like the Supreme Court. And in that, you have four cardinals. And then you can have also two extra non-clerical judges. Mm -hmm. And Jerry, your source in your print story said that all this appealing could take like two years altogether. Is that right? Yes. But, you know, trials in Italy tend to go on for years and years. Well, we've learned that with this first round. We don't know how long the Court of Appeal takes. It could be a long time. We just don't know. But I was given that as a ballpark figure by uh, a knowledgeable source. And Jerry, I have another question on what happens next here, which is uh, to do with the prison sentences. So I'm sure that our listeners are wondering this too. The Vatican, I know, has like three or four jail cells in its um, police headquarters. But it, I mean, are they going to put these people in jail in the Vatican? How does this work if they do serve their jail sentences? First of all, nobody will go to jail before the trial has finished. You're including the appeals? Including the appeals. In other words, the whole judicial process is finished. Then we will have to see if the appeal court reduces the prison sentences, for example, for Bechu, which is five years. If it reduces to two, then the sentence will be suspended according to Vatican law. Right. This is kind of an automatic thing that happens with two-year or less sentences. It's a change to the law that Pope Francis introduced some time back. If at the end of the day, the Court of Cassation, they still have Betchu condemned to five years and six months in prison, then it is also possible that the Pope would intervene. Remember, Benedict XVI pardoned Paola Gabrieli, the butler, who went to jail. He was in the Vatican jail. This is the butler who was responsible for VatiLeaks. 
Yes, that the Pope went and visited him and he pardoned him. What you're saying is there's a, a possibility that Francis pardons Betchu at the end of all this? Well, Betchu is already 75 years old, Colleen. If it takes another two years to get through the two courts of appeal, as it were, he will be 77. I think at that age, they tend not to send people to prison anyway. Another thing to consider here might be that we've already seen Francis kind of make a move towards mercy uh, in terms of Betchu. I'm thinking of the Holy Thursday when rather than celebrating a public mass, Pope Francis made a surprise visit to Betchu's apartment and, and did Holy Thursday mass there, which included the washing of the feet. And that was seen as kind of a a merciful gesture in the midst of everything that Betchu was being tried for. Yes, but the Pope balances mercy and justice. I, I think some people misread this as a rehabilitation of Betchu. I never saw it in that light. I saw it in another light. The Pope was being compassionate while holding the strong line. And just to add to that, if they do end up having to serve these prison sentences, the Vatican has had a deal with Italian prisons since 1929 that people can serve Vatican sentences in Italian prisons. So if it comes to that, that's what might happen. Jerry, one last question as regards all of this and what it says about the progress of financial reform in the Vatican. I mean, this is unprecedented trial, unprecedented verdict for an institution that's struggled for decades to hold officials accountable for financial mismanagement. How do you view this moment in the long line of attempts at financial reform? And do you expect any further reforms? I think this is a very important step in the process of reform that Francis has put in place. It started under Benedict, but Francis really moved it along in very significant ways in his 10 years, already 10 years as Pope. And it is a very clear statement that he wants integrity, transparency, and complete honest dealing. And that Vatican officials use money that they receive from the faithful in a prudent and judicial way. All right, Jerry. Thank you for talking me through this very complicated trial. I know it's been years of coverage that we're now squeezing into a, a short podcast episode, so I appreciate it. Well, I think we have to admit we still do not know a lot. Yes. None of us has seen all the trial depositions. And it's clear that this is not over. Jerry, this is not the end of this story, but this is our last episode of this calendar year. We are expecting the Pope's Christmas message to the Cardinals on Friday. Yes, and on Christmas Day, his message to the world will be, I think, very well worth listening to. The New Year's Day one is always one to watch, so we'll be covering all of that. For our listeners, you can find coverage of that at americamagazine.org. Our, our Christmas break is not much of a break, but there won't be new episodes of Inside the Vatican unless there's some big news. So Jerry, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. I'll see you next year. I wish you a happy and peaceful Christmas to all our listeners and to you, Colleen, and to Ricardo, our producer, and to the others involved. It's been a great year, and I look forward to next year. I think we will have a lot to tell, a lot to say, a lot to keep interest. A lot to cover. All right, Jerry, looking forward to yet another year of covering the Vatican with you. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Ricardo Da Silva. Audio engineering from Kevin Christopher Robles. 
Production assistance from Delaney Coyne, our O'Hare Media Fellow, and Vivian Richard at the Jesuit Curia in Rome. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Parts of this show are recorded at the studio inside the Jesuits' international headquarters in Rome. To keep up with the latest news out of the Vatican, please follow us on X at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also follow me on X and Instagram at Colleen Dully, that's C O L L E E N D U L L E, and Jerry on X at Jerry O Rome, that's G E R R Y O R O M E. Please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Media. Just click the link in our show notes, it's easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. And if you have a little time to spare, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next time and Merry Christmas. Thank you.